Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Amy Saul has spent her life negotiating two continents. As a first-generation American, she was born and raised in New York City. However, with a father who spent 20 years in the UN and both parents hailing from Senegal, her ties to West Africa run deep. On one hand, she's had a pretty cosmopolitan upbringing, studying at the New School and earning her master's at Columbia University, pausing only for an internship at Vogue and the UN. On the other, Amy has spent extensive time in Kenya, working with victims of female genital mutilation, enforced marriage, and speaking out about the political and cultural exploitation of Africans and African Americans. This bicultural world has inspired Amy to found Sunu, an evolving publication that focuses on the African voice in critical thought and aesthetics. I don't think there could be a better moment to discuss Amy's personal experience and perspective of these two very unique worlds, How can fashion become global without turning culture into fleeting fads? How do we explore unfamiliar foreign places without stripping them of context? These are questions that seem crucial to creating a more responsible and respectful pursuit of a globally infused style industry. As a lifelong devotee to African and human rights, Amy knows that politics and style start at the same exact place, with the individual. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Christine. Thank you so much for being a guest on Unstyled. Thanks so much for having me. Happy I, to be here. Thanks. <laughs> so you grew up you grew up in New York, mm-hmm. and your parents are both from Senegal. Yep. So tell me a little bit about what it felt like to be a first-generation American growing up in New York and really yeah. having these strong ties to West Africa. Yeah, so we uh, lived in the Bronx for a long time, so my family moved to. You know, it was an interesting upbringing. We grew up in a very Senegalese home, you know, the food, the music, um, we kept the culture very much alive. But it was interesting having to negotiate these kind of identities outside the home. In school, I went to, my schools were pretty diverse, but they were largely African-American, Latino community. And I was always cast as the other because I was African. So it was was weird having to um, straddle this line with being an African born and American, but being very African and not really being accepted. Did you feel like you didn't fit in? For a long time, yeah. Um, Because I was African and because I was a dark African, there were a lot of issues surrounding identity. And school children can be quite cruel. I don't know. There was a period in which I just kind of grew into my own and accepted my Senegalese culture fully and was not apologetic about it. And, you know, I wouldn't want to change for anything. I wouldn't want to be anything else. I wouldn't want to be from any other place. How did your parents help to kind of lay the foundation in terms of just helping you to adapt to, mm-hmm. to you know, going to school here in New York? They've always just instilled in me the importance of understanding where you come from, understanding who you are, and being proud of it. They taught me to be unwavering in my love for my culture and my country. And so that helped in being a little bit more defiant and being a little more confident. Um, It's not like I ever fought back with these kids, but I always knew where I come from is a special place because my parents always drilled that into me. And they knew that they came here for my education, for a better life for me. So it's 
they always wanted me to understand that perspective and and understand that who I am is someone special and no child or no one can can take that away from me. So you got your master's at Columbia. Mm-hmm. What did you get your master's in? I got my master's in human rights studies. My regional focus was sub-Saharan Africa, and I ended up focusing on um, youth economic empowerment. Because I realized there was a huge global youth unemployment crisis, and because Africa is close to my heart, I wanted to zero in on sub-Saharan Africa. I just wanted to explore why so many young people were unemployed. Youth unemployment definitely is a global issue, but the themes that I was finding, I think, were very much African themes. I mean, maybe there are generational conflicts in other cultures, but I know in Africa it's a huge thing. Older people don't really see... I don't want to generalize, but a lot of older people don't really see young people as worthy of having certain positions or worthy of being included because they're young. It's like a whole ageism thing. You also do a really great job of sort of speaking out politically Mm -hmm. through your social media, which is, you know, lots of people do it. But I think that you manage to merge that with a really beautiful aesthetic Mm -hmm. and and a real point of view that I think is very distinctive to you. Can you talk a little bit about how you like to use that platform to to talk about and express the things that you're passionate about? It's funny because a lot of people seem to think that my Instagram is curated or it's like premeditated or whatever. It's it's purely it's all natural. I know it's kind of weird to use the word natural with social media because in this day and age, but that everything is so orchestrated. Exactly. So highly filtered. Yeah, exactly. Um, But I do what I feel when I feel it on my Instagram. If I feel that I want to say something on my Instagram, then I will say if I feel I want to post a selfie, I will do it. If I feel I want to post an archival image, I will do it. It's just in a strange way, these things are extensions of myself. A lot of people find me, and I always, I don't know, I cringe because I can be self-deprecating, but find me as quote-unquote inspiration, which... Um, you're so inspirational, though. <laughs> That's why you're here. I, yeah, it's just, it's it's really humbling. It's really humbling that people find something in me that they can relate to or they can aspire to. So I'm really humbled by when I get responses or messages of like people saying, I'm really inspired by what you do, or I'm interested in taking a human rights course, or I'm interested in getting my master's, like how did you? And so that I always appreciate. For me, what can be a little bit, a little bit scary and jarring is when people say that I'm an authority on things. People, I've had some people say, you are an authority on African issues or art. And that's just really, that to me is scary because I never claim to be an authority on anything. I'm learning just as everyone else is learning. I'm, every time I'm curious about something, I go and I research and I find out about it and I'll share, but I would never claim to be an authority, even if I had a million degrees, you know, I don't think I would want to be. I think it's the same with the term influencer, which I find to be. Which (laughs) also scares me. It know. makes Influent- me in- Influential how? I don't think I'm above or below anybody. And so I, those those terms, I, 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 don't, I don't want them to be put on me. But. but you recently tweeted, and if it's okay, I'm going to read it to yeah, you, yeah. to the social media stars who are quiet during these times, feigning care, whatever juju there is to delete your account, <laughs> I hope you get it. And that was in light of recent violence affecting Mm -hmm. our country. First of all, I really admire that you said that. I think that's a great opportunity to Mm -hmm. use social media to express those feelings. I get really nervous sometimes about Mm -hmm. speaking out about political issues that maybe I don't feel like an authority Mm -hmm. on, but that I have obviously passionate feelings Mm -hmm. about. I just think that we are in a time where you cannot be idle, you can't be a bystander, you can't be passive. And I think that if you have, I don't know, 
whether it's like a million followers, 50,000 followers, you don't have to be outwardly political. But I think that, I mean, something should be said and say something with a level of sensitivity. I What I noticed on certain social media accounts is that people were trying to address uh, some the issues that we've been facing, but in a way that was almost performative, that didn't seem genuine. Can you give any examples? Do you I'll feel describe a photo. There okay. was a photo of a social media, quote unquote, star. Um, she posted, it was a crying selfie, like her eyes were closed and she, it, it appeared she had just finished crying or something. And I was reading through some of the comments and pe- some people called her out like, is this your way of... So, you know, it's things like that it just doesn't feel... Like who cries and takes a selfie and then writes a whole thing? Of, I don't know. So things like that, that just, you know, the people can feel when something is genuine, when it's not. And if you feel compelled to say something about the issues, I think there needs to be a level of sensitivity and there needs to be a level of honesty. There needs to be a level of true compassion and not doing it just because you have X amount of followers and you have to do it. But, well, I mean, you should be saying something no matter what, but don't do it in a way that just seems packaged and performative and insensitive. That to me is almost worse than just not saying anything at all or just like pretending like it doesn't happen and you continue to post your vacation or whatever. Why do you think it's worse? Because it's not real. It's not, it's, it's, it feels like an obligation and not something that's honest and true. People are being shot and killed in the streets and to respond in a way that just seems so like I don't know packaged it's it doesn't it doesn't feel right it doesn't sit well with me I always think of it as sort of the campaignifying of mm-hmm. of everything you mm-hmm. know everything does feel like it needs to be packaged mm-hmm. in order for people to understand it and digest it yeah and I think we should probably give our audiences more credit than that mm-hmm. that they can Absolutely. actually they can actually get some raw absolutely feedback or mm-hmm. or you know feelings about a certain event or a certain mm-hmm. you know situation that's happening and not feel like if it's not delivered in a certain package that they're <laughs> they're not going to like yeah, it it's underestimating Literally. their intelligence too people can see through what's you know fake also just knowing as much as you can about what is happening i think people just see what's happened in the last month and they don't realize that this is a, there's a long history of this. This has been happening, and there are people being shot and killed who are unnamed. Who like, I mean, it's just this is not anything new. I think just kind of we should all just be educating ourselves on the history of what's been happening. And I say that everyone's form of activism and protest is not the same. You don't have to go out in the streets if that's not your thing. But if there's maybe you're a writer and you want to write something, I mean, there's there are so many ways in which you can show your support or show that you are compassionate or show that you care about certain things. Not everything needs to be homogenized. Not everyone has to have one way of, I don't know, speaking out. So I would say like sensitivity, educating ourselves and finding your way of protest and activism that feels comfortable to you. That's really, really good advice. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
So you are really well known for your style. You have amazing style. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons why I admire you and I admire your style is because it's really simple, but it's really memorable. As somebody that obviously cares about style and mm -hmm. really takes a lot of pleasure in getting dressed mm -hmm. and not in a way that says, I want you to notice me right. kind of way. But how would you say, you know, your Senegalese roots have really inspired your appreciation for fashion and yeah. also how it's informed your personal style? Yeah. I think uh, specifically with Senegal, I've always been drawn to how elegant the women are, especially my grandmother. My grandmother is my style icon. Just It's not even about what she's wearing. It's kind of the way she wears it, how she holds herself. She's just so incredibly elegant, but in a way that's not in your face. It's just very subtle. And I think a lot of most Senegalese women kind of have that innate understated elegance, which I that's what I try to incorporate. Does it come from confidence? I don't know. I think it's just embedded in the cultural DNA, if I can say it's that. Like a respect or appreciation yeah. for just getting dressed Absolutely. and looking good. Absolutely. There's no... Every day women are dressed like there's no like you know here we have we kind of have this culture of like you know if we want we can just wear our sweatpants and whatever but like there the women are dressed every day and especially on Fridays it's quite beautiful it's called Juma it's the Friday um where they have their Friday prayer and everyone is just dressed to the nines the men the women the children it's the most beautiful scene every Friday but even on a regular day, people are just, they take pride in what they wear. And it's really beautiful. And I think that's what I've kind of extracted from my Senegalese roots and culture. You know, I don't really wear wax print or, you know, a lot of print. And I think people expect me to do that because I'm African. But I'm like, being African is enough. Like, I don't have to, like, <laughs> over, not that it's, like, overperforming. But, you know, I just think that being African, I don't need to, like emphasize my Africanness. It's like, it's here. I'm here. I am. I'm just a minimalist at heart, but I, I do. There are things that I extract, like that sense of just pride and sense of understated elegance and, and having that elegance not always exude from what you're wearing, but just how you're wearing it. You interned at both the UN and Vogue mm -hmm. magazine. Um, tell me a little bit about those those two worlds colliding. You know, how did they inform yeah. each other, and what was what what was your takeaway from both of those? Looking back, I realized a nine to five job is not really <laughs> what I want. Even though that would disappoint my father to hear, but I just I think both places are you know they're very much very much office culture, and I I think the older I get and the more involved I'm getting in the work that it is I'm trying to do, I realize I need openness and fluidity so that so office culture is not really for me I was at the features department at Vogue learned a lot about the process but just realized that I think for a long time I was confusing passion with interest and so I thought I was passionate about fashion and wanting to work in that world but I was just interested in fashion and so I realized I don't necessarily want to build a career in that world but I like it also realizing for me that it was hard to always measure the impact of the work being done at the UN. It takes a long time for things to be implemented in countries. And even then... It's to like, see results. Yeah, to see results. And even then, it's like the work... Can, we can do all this great work at the UN, but if the heads of state don't have the political will to enact these kinds of things... And so it sounds to me, and I could be wrong, and please tell me if I am, mm -hmm. um, that 
Sunu is kind of an opportunity for you to have control over the messaging mm-hmm. and over the impact or, mm-hmm. or hopefully in influence the impact um, Truly, that yeah. the kind of content that you want to create, people that you want to engage mm-hmm. in that, you know, within that experience. So t- I would love to hear about how that idea yeah. was born and where it is right now. Yeah. So that idea was born during my final year of grad school. My peers were like, you know, writing some really great papers giving some really great presentations. But it was always kind of sad because these great papers would just like be submitted to the professor and that would be that. And maybe there should be a space for young people to submit their work on Africa. And because I love the visual arts, you know, I wanted that to include not just, you know, students, but, you know, young photographers, young artists, young creative writers. Printing Sunu is almost making a political statement because I peruse my favorite bookshops all the time and there is nothing really on Africa on any of those shelves. Like, you know, there are plenty of journals and magazines on everything under the sun, but there's nothing quite specifically on Africa. In a way, Sinu is pushing back against this traditional way of learning. You know, we always learn from like the scholars and the professors or the top curators. And it's like, you know, young people have, you know, things to say, things to produce, and they should be recognized and they should participate in the discussions and they should be able to contribute to the discourses surrounding Africa. Well, I think what you're proposing is a really important segue for talking a little bit about cultural appropriation Mm -hmm. in in fashion and style. It's interesting that over the last year or two, there's been more attention given to different designers or collections Mm -hmm. that have been drawing critically or maybe inappropriately from different cultures Mm -hmm. and different countries. I would just love to to hear what you think as someone who who deeply appreciates fashion style, Mm -hmm. human rights, global cultures. You know, what do you think about how we can do a better job of negotiating or really reconciling cultural appropriation with appreciation? Mm -hmm. I understand things like being pinned on a mood board for inspiration but it's like how many mood boards does it take for it to go from like inspiration to straight up cultural appropriation it's not a fashion statement these are cultural things right like these there are certain things worn for certain occasions there are certain meanings like it's like there are certain things that serve an importance and when you're just kind of stripping all of that from its context and putting it on the runway for it to be consumed by like all the Parisian and English and whatever magazines for public consumption it's just it's really quite sad it shows a lack of respect and it shows a lack of knowledge and a lack of research if they just kind of extracted maybe one or two elements of I don't know something that they found beautiful or significant from a culture and wasn't so derivative. It's like plagiarism. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like plagiarism. It's still a form of neocolonialism. The cultural appropriating of African cultures are still taking from, you know, the continent without permission, without respect to the people, without paying homage to the culture, without respecting the culture. I mean, it's still a way of Western privilege. Like if you see the Mona Lisa, you constantly see it, like whether it's reprinted you know it's it's re-photographed it starts to lose its meaning and its aura it's you don't feel the sense of amazement like as as if you You become numb to it exactly and it's the same thing with cultural appropriation it's like the more you extract these things from its context the more you put it you know in some like I remember Aldo was doing years ago wax print shoes for a long time I was like 
infuriated. <laughs> there was a recent Twitter feud, I believe it was on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, between Amandala Stenberg mm-hmm. and um, Kylie Jenner because Kylie Jenner was wearing cornrows. She really took her to, took her to task mm-hmm. on you know talking about the fact that it was inappropriate for Kylie to be wearing cornrows mm-hmm. because she isn't African American mm-hmm. or has no genuine ties to that culture. How do you feel about that? You know, mm-hmm. even in that sort of that kind that form of appropriation where do you draw the line things that have an inherent cultural history i'm against taking that and just boiling it down and distilling it to just pure aesthetics cornrows that is purely african (laughs) that is african that's pre-colonial era that is just that's in our blood i will say it's important that amanla someone like amanla is is saying hey this is where it comes from this is why it's not okay because i feel like there's a, a lot of people who just don't know I don't know if that's Kylie's case, you know, but there are a lot of people who just don't know and just don't or maybe don't care. Drawing from these cultures Mm -hmm. and interpreting um, those legacies in different ways, Mm -hmm. it comes with a responsibility of sharing the origin story Mm -hmm. of those details. I heard Mm -hmm. from you (laughs) (laughs) that you're teaching a class at the new school. Yes. The title of the course is quite long. It's called The African Gaze, Postcolonial Visual Culture and the Social Imagination. So it's a course on postcolonial visual culture from Africa, um, kind of from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and just kind of a way to, to show this history of Africans telling their own stories through their own lenses, through their own like perspectives for a long time. You know, they've been subjected to colonial photography or colonial film where Africans were the, the subject and, you know, mostly considered subaltern and like positioned in a certain way that, you know, the, you know that gaze is very biased. But so this course is, fo- is focusing on the shifting of that narrative, like Africans telling their own stories, the social and political economic conditions, expressing them through film and photography And yeah, it should be interesting. (laughs) Well, it sounds awesome. Thanks. (laughs) Amy, it's been such a pleasure having you on Unstyled. Thank you so much much for being here. And Uh, good luck with Sunu. I cannot wait to see the first issue. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you're inspired after hearing Amy Saul's story. For even more Unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be super grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on iTunes and rate us while you're there. You can head to refinery29.com to find this episode and more, and make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter, delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was produced and edited by Elisa Kreisinger, with production assistance from Rebecca Easley for Refinery29. Copy and research support provided by Lila Brilson. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff. Hannes Brown produced our episode music, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with Jill Cardman on saying fuck it to fitting in.